welcome, welcome to another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spendlove, and I'm joined by our co-host, Ethan Scroggins. Ethan, how are you? Doing good. Post-finals is uh, about the best you can feel in law school. That's right. Yeah, that little four or five day break before you uh, take the plunge again. Well, folks, we're really excited today. We've got a very special guest. Uh, Ryan Calvert, who is uh, out with the Brazos County District Attorney's Office. We're very excited to have him here with us. He's a longtime friend of the Baylor Law School, uh, frequent guest visitor for the Criminal Law Boot Camp, and he literally wrote the book on Vordire. So we are really excited to have Ryan here with us today. Ryan, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm excited to be uh, visiting with you guys today. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. We, we are really excited. It's, a, it's an honor to have you on. Brian, uh, we ask all of our guest speakers kind of to walk us through the story of their career just so we can all get inspired, kind of get an idea of what you know, a different career path might look like. So would you walk us through uh, kind of how you got from, let's say, from law school to where you are now? Sure. I, I went to Texas Tech Law School, and, and so I graduated um, in May of 2002. I, I knew long before I was in law school or before I was even in college, I knew I wanted to be a prosecutor. And, and so I uh, graduated in May, moved uh, the next day to Dallas, where, which is where I grew up, and um, took the bar in July. And then immediately after taking the bar, but before I got results, I started as a uh, misdemeanor prosecutor at the district attorney's office in Dallas County and uh, was a prosecutor in Dallas County for about a year and then went uh, just up the up the street to Denton County, which is North Dallas area. And uh, I was in the Denton County DA's office as a prosecutor, first as a misdemeanor prosecutor and then and then a felony prosecutor for about nine years until 2012. And then in uh, the summer of 2012, I came here to Brazos County, which is Bryan College Station, home of, of Texas A&M University. Uh, I'm a Red Raider, so they deploy us down here to police the Aggies a little bit. And, um, and so I've been here since 2012, and uh, this is a, a great office, and I, and I love it, and, and no plans to go anywhere anytime soon. I'm here as long as they'll have me. That's great. That's great. Now. Uh, you have recently taken on a new role. Is that correct? Uh, about a year ago. About a year ago. ago. Yeah. Okay. Would you mind talking with us about that? Sure. I, the first, uh, I guess, 18 years of my career as a prosecutor, I was a a courtroom prosecutor. I was, I was in, in a trial court, uh, trying cases. I've tried somewhere in the neighborhood of right around 300 uh, jury trials uh, at this point in my career, 19 years in. Um, but then about a year ago, I um, made a little bit of a change. I've moved into uh, our appellate section. And so I, I tell people that for 18 years I was in sales and now I'm in warranties. And, and so I, uh, I handle appeals and uh, post-conviction writs mainly. We, uh, we do still help some with, with trials, uh, you know, if evidentiary questions come up or jury charge questions come up before trial or during trial, we kind of help the, 
the trial prosecutors with that. But yeah, I'm on I'm more on the back end uh, of the trial process now. I spent the first 18 years of my career uh, on the front end. Got it. Got it. Wow. What uh, what different? I mean, you talk about sales versus you know warranties. What yeah. different skill sets are really at play between those two? Well, you have to you have to know how to read. That's the thing. <laughs> um, you have to know how to write. So, as a trial prosecutor, there's almost no writing in mm-hmm. a, in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Virtually none. I, I mean, I I don't know that I ever ever wrote a brief or, or anything like that in 18 years of, of trying cases. Um, mm. As an appellate person, that's most of what I do every day. I'm either reading or I'm writing about what I read. Um, and that's the biggest difference. I, I like to write, I, I enjoy it. And so I, I've enjoyed kind of continuing to develop my writing skills. Uh, I was not a great legal writer in law school. I don't think I did especially well in legal writing in law school. I don't know that I'm still a great law school legal writer, mm-hmm. but um, but I think I do okay in the real world. Um, yeah. The real world sometimes a little bit different than, than the law school world. Just just give you a little spoiler. <laughs> I uh, Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> um, that's great. Uh, so do you feel like I mean, your career has taken this turn. So let me ask this a little bit differently. How do you feel like your first 18 years in the courtroom prepared you to do what you're now doing as an appellate attorney? It, it prepared me well, just because I have enough trial experience to, to know where you can get in trouble. And, and that's, mm. that's the key on the appellate side is if you can stay out of trouble on the, on the front end, that's that's ideal. What you what you don't like as an appellate prosecutor is trying to fix trouble that people got in by by screwing something up at the trial level. For example, um, if I was trying a case and the defense wants a particular instruction, like a, a lesser included offense instruction in the jury charge, I'm probably not going to fight you on that at the trial mm-hmm. level because I know that that's a big area you can get in trouble on appeals and that can get you into a big fight at the appellate level. And so if it doesn't really hurt me, I'm not gonna fight you on things that will then turn into a a potentially costly uh, fight at the appellate level that could potentially cost you the case. And why get into a fight that that you don't need to be in? And so it's things like that, evidentiary questions. if, if, um, If I know that there's certain evidence that I have that Eh, maybe it's admissible, maybe it's not. If I don't really need it, I may not put that in. Uh, or if the defense has some evidence that they want in and maybe it's admissible, maybe it's not, I might let them put it in um, mm-hmm. just because I, I don't want to I don't want to get into trouble at the appellate level. And so being in those situations a lot has helped me as an appellate uh, prosecutor now kind of recognize uh, to be able to issue spot and, and, and to kind of work the problem on the back end on the appeal side. That's really cool. And you know, that, that phrase you use issue spot, that's something that we hear a lot in law school. Right. And yeah. I think it's an interesting kind of other side of the coin where almost all the cases that we read, I, I think basically all of them 
are an appeal of some kind, right? Yes. Either at the, All of them. you know, yes. yeah, criminal appeals or, or uh, Supreme Court cases, that kind yep. of thing. And I find myself frequently being like, oh, you dummies, if you'd only done it right, you know, at the trial level, you know, dummies being practicing brilliant attorneys who are much more experienced than myself. But the point being, you know, kind of having that hindsight is interesting. So for, for what you're saying, having now had an 18 year career of practical experience, you know, you can, you can shore up a lot of those things. That's really interesting. Yeah. One of the biggest areas where uh, trial prosecutors get in trouble at the appellate on, on appeal is not developing a record. Um, mm-hmm. For example, if you have a, uh, if, if you're in a suppression hearing before trial, on a, on a drug case or a DWI or something like that, that resulted say from a traffic stop, okay? Um, you have to, at the trial level, have your police officer actually testify, actually say the words for all the different reasons or justifications why he or she did what they did. Um, because if they don't say those words in the suppression hearing, as far as the appellate court is concerned, it didn't exist and it didn't happen. And that's an area where I think uh, young prosecutors in particular get in trouble is a lot of times things are obvious. And and in your mind, they kind of go without saying, well, of, of course he smelled the marijuana or of course he uh, smelled alcohol or of course he saw uh, driving that, that would lead a reasonable person to believe that that driver was intoxicated but they didn't have him say it and they didn't have him articulate it on, mm-hmm. on the witness stand in a suppression hearing. And you have to do that. You have to develop that record. And that's a, that's a big, big issue on appeal. And so as a, as a current appellate prosecutor, I'm asking y'all, if y'all become prosecutors, please, please, please be uh, very diligent in developing a record, uh, whether you're in a pretrial hearing or in a trial, because uh, it makes the appeals process a lot easier. What I will say about that from a law student's perspective, I think it's a, it's a little easy to forget about that because when you do moot court or like, especially mock trial competitions, um, it's, you get points for preserving the record. And if the opposing party doesn't preserve that record, you can get points if you butt in and you say, oh, well, your honor, we'd like to put this on the record or make it known. Yeah, but that's, that's not the case in the rule order, right? Like that opposing party isn't going to, go out of their way to put something on the record that might win them the case when they go out on appeal. Yeah, and, and there's a difference between, like you used the word preserving a record, which preserving a record, um, I associate with like making an objection or, or doing something like that versus making a record, hmm. which is here is why I did what I did. Um, what, or having an officer, for example, testify, here is why I did what I did, or even you as a, as a trial prosecutor uh, saying, here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, closing argument. You can, it's actually in the law, you can respond as a prosecutor, you can respond to improper argument with improper argument. So for example, if a defense lawyer in a closing argument starts arguing things outside the record, well, the state, you know, didn't call this witness because they don't want you to see this, that, or the other. Because defense attorneys will say things like that, that no one testified about that. That wasn't in the record, but they'll they'll argue it. 
if they make an argument outside the record as a prosecutor, you can object and say, well, uh, objection judge, that's outside the record and the judge can sustain it or, or the judge won't sustain it. They'll say, you'll remember what the evidence is and counsel move mm-hmm. on. The better approach as a prosecutor is to, you get to get up and you get to respond to them and say, mm-hmm. here's why I didn't call that witness because that witness is under indictment and I'm not gonna give them a deal or whatever, whatever the case may be. You can tell the jury, even if it's not in the record, it's called the doctrine of invited argument, right? Well, if you're gonna do that, just a little, a little thing, you can get up and go, folks, um, you know, members of the jury, defense counsel just got up here and they just said X, Y, and Z. I want to respond directly to what they said about that. Yeah. And then you say it. And while you're ostensibly talking to the jury, who you're really talking to is the court of appeals. You're, you're mm. putting a flag on that part of the record saying, hey, guys, here's what I'm doing and here's why I'm doing it. And so it's just little things like that that you learn over time uh, just to kind of protect a case at the appellate level and and start that process at the trial level. That's really cool. Um, Before we were before we were recording, we were talking a little bit about, you know, setting habits uh, as early as you can. Anything else uh, from an appellate perspective that would be good for young new attorneys, whether prosecutors or defense were you know, your expertise is obviously for prosecutors, but um, any habits that we can start setting uh, that are going to save us a lot of grief? Uh, I don't know. I'm still a fairly new appellate attorney. (laughs) No, I just learned how to read, man. You got to give me time. But um, no, I think that I think the biggest thing is um, making a record, whether you're a defense lawyer or or you're a prosecutor make a record because if it's not in the record at the appellate level, it, the assumption is it didn't happen. And so um, I, we actually, I, I heard a uh, Jesse McClure who's on the court of criminal appeals came and, and spoke here recently. And, and that's the one thing he said is just guys make a record because so often we're looking at, at a record on appeal and we kind of think we know what happened, but no one made a record of it. And so we can't assume that it happened. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the big thing is just regardless of what side you're on, make a record. And, I, and then I want to I want to um, address prosecutors in particular. As far as making a record goes, the most. Um, I think the most litigated post-conviction issue these days is ineffective assistance of counsel, uh, ineffective assistance of defense counsel, whether it's on the, at the appellate level or more commonly at the post-conviction writ level. And trial prosecutors can go a long way towards um, kind of inoculating defense attorneys from down the road claims of ineffective assistance by just putting things on the record like uh, defense counsel has been very active in this case. He's come to me numerous times. We've had numerous conversations where he's advocated on behalf of his client, tried to get me to lower the offer, asked me for probation, um, you know, whatever. Uh, but he's been very diligent about going through the evidence and, and, and meeting with me on this case. Just saying those words on the record uh, can go a long way towards later on heading off an effective claim from a defendant who's now in prison 
and files an affidavit saying my lawyer never came to see me. My lawyer never did anything for me. My lawyer didn't look at the evidence in the case. And so that's where experience comes in. Just as a trial prosecutor, you know that five years from now, a defendant might make that claim. And so I'm just going to put on the record now what I need to to stop that claim from ever really being made. That's a really interesting point, too. Uh, that fits with what some of our other guests, I think Akua Asabil especially, was saying about, you know, yes, we are on a, opposite sides of the table, but we're all still trying to make sure that justice is done, right? And Correct. so even... I mean, even something like that, you think, okay, we won, the state won the case, right? But the appeals story has yet to be written. And so if you can shore up that conviction by helping out the defense team with this particular kind of an, an issue, um, well, that's, sure. that's something you can be doing. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, we all, we, anybody that's been a prosecutor for a while will have stories like um, you're in trial and maybe the defense attorney has has missed some issue or not objected to something that that or indicated that they're going to object to something that you're going to do and you might outside the presence of the jury go on the record just say hey judge i just want to give the court a heads up um we're about to put this evidence in i haven't had a chance to talk to the defense about uh this yet but i assume that defense counsel is going to have this objection to this evidence and i just hmm. to save time I wanted to get that out there now. And that way the defense attorney is going to get up and go, yes, I do want to make that objection. And, yeah. you know, we're kind of prompting them yeah. to make the proper objections because it, it is, it's about doing the right thing the right way and, and making sure that not only we're doing our jobs, but the defense attorney is doing their job as well. That's really cool. I saw that a lot, actually, that, that kind of thing uh, out in Limestone County over the summer. Yes. Um, I mean, on docket days, you know, we we're sitting five feet away. I mean, social distance or whatever you want to say, but sitting five <laughs> feet away from the defense, the table full of defense attorneys. And it's very cordial, very colloquial oh, yeah. and, and being able to, you know, just talk back and forth with each other. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, cooperation there. But then also, you know, when we're working on difficult parts of the case, like there's one case we were working on that involved I'm not going to give away all the details, but a cell phone and some body cam footage. And we were trying to, you know, work through it. The defense attorney came in and we were able to show him this part of the body cam footage that we were concerned about and give him that, you know, that heads up. And so it's, it's a good reminder just kind of as in general um, that we're all playing for the team for team justice. Right. But uh, there are ways that you can find, you know, uh, to cooperate in that kind of thing. So that's an interesting point you brought up. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit now uh, to talk about what we are really, you know, really excited to hear you talk about, which is Vordire. Uh, let me let me start here. How did you how did you come to to find this as your niche or as the the topic that really uh, you know you've you've taken the ball and run with? I, well, um, making lots of mistakes, I think, uh, and, and trying my best to learn from them. So obviously I've, I've been blessed throughout my career to have a lot of trial experience. Um, and with experience, experience is only valuable if you honestly self-reflect 
whenever you gain it and really try to, to apply what you've learned. Um, I've always said that failure is a far better teacher than success will ever be. And so I've been guilty of this myself and I've, and I've seen many, many other prosecutors make this mistake of you lose a case that you felt like you should have won and you go back to your office and you tell your, your teammates uh, how stupid the jury was and how it was a bad jury and the jurors were bad and it was six people or 12 people who were not smart enough to get off of jury duty. And, um, and then one day it kind of dawned on me, I was like, well, who picked that jury? I, I did, uh, you know, and who, who prepared that jury? I did. And, and it was about really taking ownership of um, our failures because we, there's a bad habit among prosecutors to blame failures on, external circumstances like a bad jury well really it was the prosecutor didn't do as effective a job as they should have at Bordier and so I've done trainings over my career I've I've, um, provided trainings to prosecutors and and police officers on all kinds of things every aspect of of trial advocacy Um, and Bordier was just the, the one thing that sort of impacted everything else. You can do the best closing argument in the world, but if you screwed up in Bordier, it's not going to matter. You can do the best cross-examination in the world, but if you screwed up in Bordier, it's not going to matter. And, and so to me, that was the doorway to everything else. And so that was uh, over the years, kind of what I've come to focus on. Cool. Yeah. I mean, based on what you were saying, you know, at the boot camp and just now, you know, things, I, I think, young lawyers, especially those of us in law school who haven't gone through this process, you know, time and time again, tend to compartmentalize this, right? Vordire is one part on our outline for whatever class. And it's like, oh, and by the way, you got to select jury, whatever. Right. But the thing that really stuck with me from the boot camp that you were saying that the, um, I mean, stuck with me is maybe an understatement, my perspective shift that you really helped me, you know, helped open my eyes to was that things in Vordire need to stretch, things that you bring up in Vordire need to stretch throughout the trial and, and they need to be themes that you're hitting on time and time again as you're direct examining, cross-examining. Absolutely. And then, and then into, your, into your closing. Will you expand on that just a little bit? and give Yeah, everybody- sure. So um, one of the things that I, I talked about at the boot camp, uh, for example, is in my opinion and in my mind, you go a long way towards preparing to be effective in Bordire if prior to Bordire, you honestly, in your own mind, consider five questions. And the first question, and maybe the most important question, is how can I lose this particular case, this specific case? Where am I weak on this specific case? If I'm trying a, a DWI and I go do DWI board hours the same way every single time, which usually the fight is going to be about intoxication, right? So I spend a lot of time in board hour talking about intoxication. So when all of a sudden I have a, a DWI case where the defendant is extremely intoxicated, but it's a crash and there's going to be a fight about who the driver was. Um, if I spend my entire board hour talking about intoxication, I have wasted that time. Because where I'm potentially weak or where the defense is going to attack is on the issue of who was driving. So that needs to be my focus in this case. And so that's question one. How can I lose this particular case? And then um, 
two sub questions of that are what are bad jurors for me in this case? What are they going to struggle with? And why are they going to struggle with those issues? Mm-hmm. And then the next question is going, I think, more to your uh, point that you were just making. What do I want to argue in closing argument in this case? Mm-hmm. And then a sub question to that, which is, how can I get jurors to say those things to me during board hour? Because if I can do that, I've already started arguing that case, which is what I want. So I'll give you an example. We try a lot of what I will call circumstantial evidence cases, uh, whether it's a murder or a robbery or whatever. There's not an eyewitness who's going to come in and say, I saw that guy and that guy committed the crime. It's going to be someone maybe saw that defendant in the area at the time. And then another person uh, saw a car that looks like the defendant speeding away after the crime. And then maybe uh, the defendant had gunshot residue on his hands, uh, you know, when he was found two hours later. And there's all these little pieces that you're going to put together or ask the jury to put together. Right. And, you know, that's going to be your closing argument. And so how can I get jurors to say those things? in board hour. And I know going in, the defense is going to argue, look, this piece of evidence doesn't prove it. And so we put that aside. This other piece of evidence doesn't prove it. So we put that aside. Well, I'm going to go into board hour and I'm going to be like, hey, jurors, juror number one, is it reasonable of me to ask you to figure out what's going on by looking at individual pieces of evidence in a vacuum by themselves out of context. And they're gonna say, no. And I'm gonna say, why not? And I'm prompting the juror to say, because you have to put everything together and see how it all fits together and and consider everything in context. And then I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna go to the next juror. What do you think about what they just said? Mm -hmm. Well, I agree. Well, why do you think that's important? Because that's what gives things meaning is how they all fit together and how they, they uh, go in the big picture. And I'm going to loop that all around the jury panel. Well, what's happening with that discussion? I'm getting the jurors to give me what ultimately will be my theory of the case, which is putting all the pieces together. And simultaneously, they are rejecting what will be the defense's theory of the case, which is look at individual pieces in a voir dire, in a, in a vacuum, rather. Mm-hmm. And... That's an example, a simple example of what I'm talking about is that's like a drumbeat that we want to start in Mordire and carry it all the way through the case. Yeah, and that's and and so what you're really trying to do there, I mean, you're talking about giving having them give you the argument that you want to be making, but what yes. you're really trying to do is identify the people who are going to be bad for you because they don't agree with that, right? And you're, you're not trying to find good jurors necessarily you're trying to strike the bad ones is is the idea that's a that's a great point and, and that's something that the public a lot of times doesn't understand and, and when you guys start trying cases you will have this happen a lot you'll go talk to jurors after a trial and the most common question by far that you get from jurors after a trial is why did you pick me mm-hmm. and the answer is i didn't i wasn't looking for who i wanted i was looking for who i don't want And so when I'm having those discussions, like we were talking about just now with circumstantial evidence, if there's jurors that go, well, yeah, or they show any hesitation with that concept of, no, you you put everything together, those people are not going to be with us because that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the people who are not going to be my people on this case. And and I'm going to find 
try to find a way to uh, free up the, the rest of their week. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I've heard it uh, again, you know, from Jeff Janes, the ADA, one of the ADAs out in Limestone County. He would he would always say in his four dyers, the best way to get on my jury is to not say anything to me. Right. And just sit there and and just kind of soak it in. So and that's true. It's the quiet ones that always end up on the jury. So I'm, I'm curious now, because obviously you have a wealth of knowledge about Vordire and you've thought a lot about this and you've got a lot of, you know, strategy, uh, I mean, really fleshed out that sort of thing. I'm curious how you came to write the TDCAA manual on Vordire, uh, what that process looked like and, and uh, how that came to be. So several years ago, I, um, I had... And I just felt called to do it. I had uh, a, a vision in my mind that I, I wanted to write a trial advocacy book. And, and my initial thought was uh, to go all the way from preparation of trial through closing argument. And, and I wanted to call it advocacy. And it was just going to be everything. It was going to be board hour, opening statements, direct process, closing. And, um, and so I wrote an outline of that that was I don't know, 40 or 50 pages. And I took it to Diane Beckham, a good friend, Diane Beckham, and she is the publications uh, person for the Texas District and County Attorneys Association. And I, I kind of showed it to her and and she came back and said, it's way too much. It's too big. It's too ambitious. You're biting off too much. You need to focus on one thing like Vordire. And mm-hmm. that needs to be your focus. And at the time it made me mad because that wasn't my vision and that wasn't what I wanted to do. And so I just put it in the drawer and, and sat on it for a couple of years. And but it was always kind of swirling around in my mind. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized Diane was right. And so I uh, just focused in on, on jury selection and, and went back to Diane and they said, well, uh, TDCA at that point had never published a, an advocacy related book i mean they have code books and they have uh other kinds of books but not specific trial advocacy books and um they wanted to see if it would be well received and so they asked me to write a series of articles for uh it's called the texas prosecutor it's a it's a bi-monthly journal uh that is sent to texas prosecutors and they wanted me to write a series of articles for that as kind of a primer for what the book would become and see how it goes. And so I, I did that. Uh, there were three articles. Um, all three of those articles in some version became chapters in the book later on. And that went well. And, uh, and so they greenlit, the, the publications committee greenlit the book. And, and so I wrote the rest of it. Wow. Do you find yourself referring to your own book from time to time for different things? No, <laughs> no, I've, I've never, I've never done that. Um, of course, I haven't, I shouldn't say this, but I, I haven't tried any cases since the book came out. It came out during oh, okay. COVID and, and then I went to appellate. And, and so I haven't been in a, in a courtroom, but uh, no, to me, it, a lot of the stuff in the book is just stuff that I've done, tactics I've learned, strategies I've learned um, over the years, mainly from making mistakes and trying to learn from them. And seeing other people make mistakes and, and trying to learn from their mistakes, but um, no, I haven't, I haven't quoted myself yet. I don't know that I, I could, 
I don't think I, I'm that guy. I don't think I can pull that off. So right on. Well, we've we've I got. Might, a couple I might quote of, you, but I won't quote myself. Well, no, no, I, I don't know about that. But uh, yeah, we. It's just it's always funny when we read a case, you know, in class with one of our professors who were, you know, outstanding in their field, and the footnote says, you know, the professor's name. So I was just curious if that, uh, if that had happened. But well, that's really cool. Um, you know, I I hope that everyone listening gets a chance to engage uh with ryan in a boot camp style fashion i mean please take the boot camp you're hearing us say that on this podcast all the time take the boot camp take the vordier part of it seriously because as we've heard today and, and as we will find out i'm sure in practice uh you know that's that's really where the case especially for the state can be lost before it even gets out of the gate uh, i wanted to ask you this as well ryan so we're, we always advocate, you know, in the criminal law society for people getting summer internships or externships during the year, if they can, that sort of thing. What can law school student interns do to maximize uh, the experience they can gain from, from witnessing Vordires? What can they actively help the attorneys out with that would be most helpful? And what should they be doing while they're observing Vordire proceedings uh, to really start setting those good habits now? Um, one thing they can do that would be helpful to the to the trial lawyers, regardless of what side you're on, is, is take notes. Um, you know, take be a diligent note taker, uh, pay attention to what jurors are saying, how they're saying it, body language. Sometimes you will have um, one juror over here on one side of the room saying X, Y, and Z, and another juror on the opposite side of the room nodding their head or something like that, but they're not saying anything, well, the, the trial lawyer may not see that. But if you see it, take note of that. Hey, juror number 25 over there was agreeing with juror number seven nodding their head when they were saying this. Um, so so pay attention to things like that and take good notes, number one. that That's an enormously helpful task in more dire. Um, the other thing that I would encourage folks to do is, number one, watch four dollars watch the watch trials period just go watch trials but watch with a purpose don't mm -hmm. just sit there and watch when you're watching a trial whether it's jury selection or something else be thinking um what would i do why are they doing that why are they asking these questions um be on the lookout for things like challenge for cause questions if you if you start hearing a lawyer on either side say um Okay, so even if you like, if you hear a prosecutor say, even if you uh, believe beyond a reasonable doubt X, Y, Z, but something else, that's a that's a red flag. That's a challenge for cause question. Pay special attention to things like that, um, and ask why are they doing that? What's the issue? And then don't be shy about finding a time to go up to them afterwards and say, hey. Um, what was the issue there? It seemed like you were trying to challenge for cause these people on this issue. Why was that? Like, what was your strategy there? They're going to love to talk to you about that. Um, trial prosecutors love to talk about our craft and mm -hmm. we jump at any opportunity to do so. Maybe not like right in the middle of trial, but on a lunch break or something sure. um, to say, Hey, what, what was this? Or why were you doing that? Ask questions and, and try to, um, like I said, watch with a purpose and gain as much useful knowledge as you can. And when you see people make mistakes or something doesn't go wrong, think about why did that not work and what maybe would have worked better? What would I have done differently uh, if I'm ever in that 
in that position and file those things away. Uh, you know, you can learn from other people's experience the same way you can learn from your own. Very, yeah. That, I appreciate you saying that. That was, I really appreciated that. Again, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up Limestone County over the summer. I got to participate in several more dire proceedings and afterward, and I think we've talked about this here on the podcast before, but after, you know, afterward, when we were making our, our challenges for cause and our strikes and that sort of thing, the attorneys asked for my input as a, as an untrained intern, you know, and, Absolutely. and uh, knowing that, you know, in the second and third iterations, uh, knowing that my input input was going to be valuable. And thankfully I had taken good notes that first time around, but knowing that that was the expectation, I was then, you know, even more keyed in. So I appreciate you kind of, you know, punctuating that and making sure everybody's, you know, looking out to be doing that as well. Well, and that's, there's actually a great lesson there, not just for jury selection, but for trial practice in general, whether you're a, a prosecutor or a defense lawyer. Um, the best perspectives, in my opinion, are the perspectives of non-trial lawyers, non-prosecutors, non-defense lawyers, because we are here every day. We do this every day. And like in any other profession, if you're around something all the time every day, you lose perspective and you become jaded to a degree. And so we might look at a case and think one way about it when John Q. Citizen on the street might have a completely different uh, take on it. And so when you go to Starbucks or something and you're just sitting there studying or working and you have an opportunity, ask the Starbucks people, hey, if somebody did this, if some, and, and you kind of give them the facts of your case, um, what are your concerns about that? Are you okay finding somebody guilty or what? And whatever concerns those people give you that they might have, those are the concerns that your bad jurors are going to have. And so now that gives you things to look for injury selection, or it gives you issues to address in terms of the presentation of your evidence and, and how you structure your case. And so whenever we, I'll tell you what we do in Brazos County, which is, is kind of unique, I think, among most DA's offices, whenever there is a trial going on, or whenever there's a trial that's going to happen, it doesn't matter if it's a state jail felony drug case or a capital murder, all jury trials, we have a, a process called boarding, where the trial we always do everything in teams. And so there'll be two trial prosecutors on every case. And the two prosecutors that are trying the case get a bunch of people in a conference room. And that group will consist of other prosecutors, people from other courts, investigators, secretaries, non-lawyers, non you know, um, wow. even, even interns when we have interns. Um, everybody goes in a conference room and they basically try the case on these big whiteboards that we have on the wall. And they talk about um, what witnesses we're going to call, what witnesses maybe we're not going to call, what the witness order is going to be and why, what topics are going to be talked about in Bordire and why, what evidence are we going to put in, how are we going to get it in, what concerns does anybody have, uh, does anybody think we're weak on something, and we just tear the case apart. Uh, there in, in those boarding sessions. And we do that on every single case. And it is those perspectives of the secretaries, the interns, the investigators, the people who are not prosecutors every day, um, their perspectives are really the, the most valuable ones because they are closer to what our jurors are going to think. That's a really, yeah, that's a really interesting perspective too. That, that echoes something that Akua was talking about uh, when we had when we interviewed her 
about just being a normal person and thinking about yeah. things from a normal person's perspective, right? Because we get so, as lawyers, it's it's obvious to us because our head is right inside of it. You know, it's yeah. like we we can we can rattle off all the elements of an offense. It's like, well, what does that mean to a regular person on the street? And a regular person on the street is who is going to be, you know, deciding whether somebody's yeah, guilty and, or not. And you were talking. I mean, I know, I, I know, I know you were present when we told people this at the boot camp during the exercises. I may have, may have told you this. I don't know, but the most common um, feedback or advice that I give young trial lawyers uh, on either side is quit talking like a lawyer. No one wants to hear you talk like a lawyer. Um, and if you talk like a lawyer, you're putting a barrier up between yourself and your audience, which is which is the jury. Um, what I always tell people is when you go to Thanksgiving later this month and you talk to your grandmother and your grandmother asks you, hey, what are you working on? You wouldn't say, well, the elements are this and and <laughs> and honor about this. Like, that's stupid. No one you'd say, man, I've got this guy and here's what he did. And, and here's what I think should happen. And here's why I think it should happen. That is exactly how you talk to a jury. It is absolutely no difference, like talking to your mom or talking to your grandmother at Thanksgiving. Notice it said your mom or your grandmother, not your friends at the bar, okay? Mm -hmm. That's a whole different conversation. But it's literally no different. That's exactly the way you talk to a jury. I think for me, that's why, you know, Vore Dyer is so interesting because you know, you have like your typical opening or closing or cross examinations where your advocacy comes out in you being like a lawyer, talking like a lawyer and kind of like portraying that and like doing that role. But then you have a unique chance in this situation to not be so upfront about being an attorney, but still get all your advocacy done. Um, I think that's really an interesting part of it. Yeah, like and, and even... About. Even on directs and crosses, um, you know, like you don't need to talk like a lawyer. In fact, you shouldn't talk like a lawyer to be effective on directs or crosses or closing arguments. The, the best um, summation or, or synopsis of cross-examination that I've ever heard in my life uh, came from a guy named Jerry Spence. I don't know if y'all know who he is. He, uh, Jerry Spence is a legendary criminal defense lawyer. I think he's still alive. He's really old. He's up in Wyoming. Um, he's famous for, uh, I don't know that he ever lost a criminal case. I think he did a lot of civil stuff too, but he's written several books. But he he had a quote one time about cross-examination and he, he said, cross-examination is simply storytelling in another form. You are telling your story through the adverse witness. And that's, that's the best synopsis of cross-examination I've ever heard. And you're not doing that by talking like a lawyer, you're storytelling. And so basically you're testifying and then you're going, right? Uh, like you're, you're testifying and you put a question mark on the end of it. That's effective cross-examination. Um, and so, yeah, don't, don't talk like a lawyer. Um, it doesn't register with jurors well and it doesn't go well. There you go. Well, Ryan, we're just about out of time. Um, any, and we've, we've been richly fed. Any parting wisdom or any other sound bites you want to leave us to chew on? I'm just encouraged and inspired to see uh, folks like you and Ethan um, that are excited and want to go into this profession. It is the best profession in the law, in my opinion. Um, if I wasn't doing this, I wouldn't be practicing law. Uh, you know, every day is different. 
every day is a new challenge. Um, it, it never gets boring. Um, and every day, really regardless of what side you're on, every day that you go into work, you're doing so in the service of something greater than yourself, um, which is an enormous blessing. Uh, it's not about money. It's not about, uh, you know, anything for yourself. It's about service to your community, to your state, to your country, and to individuals. And uh, that's a blessing in any profession. And, and so that's what I would encourage y'all to do is find a way to serve. And if it's as a criminal lawyer, either as a prosecutor or defense attorney, um, it's not a choice I, I don't think that you will regret. It, it's, a, it's a fun, fun job. And uh, I've, I've been blessed to be a part of it. And, and uh, I'm excited and inspired to see you guys uh, coming up the, up the road. It's a, it's a fun job. Well, thank you so much. And, and gosh, thanks again for joining us today, Ryan. It's been an absolute treat uh, to get to talk to you about a lot of different things. And, and we ended up spending a lot of time talking about the appellate stuff, which I think is really cool too. Something we haven't heard too much about here on the podcast yet. So thanks so much, Ryan. We, we really do appreciate having you on today. Anytime. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for this week. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. Till next time, y'all take care. Hey guys, this is Ryan. Um, There's one more thing I wanted to add that I felt was important to share with everybody. Uh, I listened to uh, Chris's interview with my good friend and former partner, Akua Asabel. And Akua kind of ended her remarks, uh, her interview with the advice that make sure and make it a priority to take care of yourself in this profession. And uh, that was so important and I just wanted to take the opportunity to echo that for all of you. This is a profession that you can absolutely lose yourself in and it's important for everybody in this job, no matter which side you're on as a prosecutor or defense attorney, to make a conscious choice to remember that this job is not as important as your family. It is not as important as your faith. It is not as important as your own well-being. No case is worth it. Uh, No job is worth it. And so please do make it a priority to take care of yourself. If you are feeling burned out, make a change. Go to a different uh, part of the office if you're a prosecutor or maybe branch out and do some different type of legal work for a while if you're a defense lawyer. Um, you know, that's part of the, a big part of the reason why I came to appellate uh, was after 18 years in a trial court, uh, I needed to change the pace some and, and uh, make my wife and, and my family uh, and my own well-being more of a priority. And learn from that, learn from those experiences. We've all known people who, uh, on the extreme end, uh, took their own lives or struggled with drug and alcohol addiction or on a a less severe uh, consequence, uh, completely burned out and had to leave the the profession. And so uh, take steps to protect yourself, uh, take care of yourself, take care of your faith, take care of your family and make those things your number one priority. And I just wanted to uh, leave you all with that and wish you good luck.